Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. Today we pick back up in our study through the Gospel of Mark called The Way of Jesus. We trust that you will receive just what you need from the Lord today. Thank you for joining us. How many of you are familiar with the concept of a loophole, right? Where there is a rule or a law, but somehow you find a way around that. I would just say that kids especially are masters of this, right? Here are some of my favorite loopholes that were posted online that kids have discovered, right? Here's the question. What country owns Greenland? Hint, it's not Greenland. This brilliant student wrote, not Greenland. And the teacher loved that and gave them an extra point, right? This person was told, hey, go put these in the bathroom. Well, technically they did it, right? Here's another one. This kid was not allowed to go outside. He was grounded inside. (laughs) So good. And this was my favorite one. The dad told him, you have to go outside. He was playing video games in his room. So look what he does. He set up his video games outside. (laughs) He found a loophole uh, to that situation. Well, this morning, uh, we find another group of people who approach Jesus And they're looking for a loophole, specifically in the area of marriage and divorce. Now, if you haven't been with us as a church, we're in a series called The Way of Jesus. And we're just walking together through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse. And really, we just want to spend time with Jesus, learning how Jesus lived his life. Because after all, as disciples of Jesus, we want to follow in his footsteps and learn to live the way he did. About two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we reached the halfway point of Mark's gospel. And the reason that is important is because starting in chapter 9, Jesus begins his journey to the cross. He begins his journey towards his fate, towards Jerusalem, where those who oppose him will ultimately condemn him to death. But we're also learning that this was all part of God's plan for Jesus and for us. The way of suffering is actually the way of glory. And today, in this passage, we're going to meet these people who oppose Jesus and ultimately condemn him as they try to trap him on the question of divorce. Now, I am fully aware as I stand up here this morning, this is a very sensitive topic. There is a lot of hurt and pain and confusion that goes along with this topic of divorce. But because we're committed to teach through the Bible verse by verse, we don't avoid these kinds of topics. But here's something I always keep in mind whenever we come across hard subjects. One thing we know for certain about the way of Jesus, if you're following on your notes with me, is that the way of Jesus is always full of grace and truth. John, one of Jesus' disciples, put it this way in John 1.14, where he writes, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what that means is every time Jesus speaks, don't misunderstand that. It doesn't mean sometimes I'm going to speak in truth and sometimes he speaks in grace. Whenever he speaks, he's fully speaking in grace and truth. I want you to imagine if your kid was about to touch a fireplace that was burning hot, what is the most gracious thing you could do to them? Warn them. And so whenever we come to these topics, I just want to remind us that even on these subjects, we receive this with grace and truth. Jesus will never berate us, praise his name, but he doesn't excuse us either. 
He always is calling us up to something better in life. And it's no different in this text. He's calling us to something better. And so if you haven't already, let me invite you to take your Bible and turn it to the Gospel of Mark, starting in chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, you might want to use your iPad or your phone or whatever, but we also have some Bibles in the seat underneath you there that are available for you. You can find this on page 821 of those black Bibles. If you are new here and you don't own a Bible, take that home with you today as our gift to you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word in their hands. But let's look at this passage together, starting in verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, let's just pause here and get a little context. You got to understand something about the heated debate that was going on in the time of Jesus. And the controversy centered around this verse in the law, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verse 1. This is the only passage in the Old Testament that sort of describes the process of getting a divorce. Here's what it says, Deuteronomy 24, 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and then it goes on to describe the process of divorce. And it's right there in those opening, ver- those opening words where this controversy lies. What does something indecent mean? What does something indecent mean? That's the burning question in Jesus' day. And there were actually two thoughts about this, two rabbis who were the leaders of the different groups. There was one more liberal rabbi of the school of Hillel, and he interpreted decent as the widest possible meaning. So listen, if your wife, I'm not joking, if your wife burnt your toast... That would be indecent and grounds for divorce. Even if you found a woman who was more beautiful than your wife, that's grounds for divorce. Now, obviously, there is a more conservative side to this as well, and they taught that the only real indecent thing was adultery or sexual immorality. That is what indecency meant to them. And so just listen, here's what the real question they're asking Jesus. They're asking him, is it lawful for us to divorce our wives on any other grounds than adultery? Okay? And Mark tells us right here that this is actually a trap they're setting for Jesus. There could be two reasons for that trap. We see that Jesus just moved into the territory of Judea, which is where Herod ruled. And if you've been with us in this series, you might remember it was Herod who cut off John the Baptist's head for the very reason of him confronting Herod about his unlawful divorce. So maybe they're hoping this happens to Jesus as well. But more likely, what they're wanting him to do is go against what the law says so that they can trap him and then have a reason to condemn him. And the reason for this is really important we get to the bottom of. If you're following on your notes, it's because the Pharisees saw divorce as a legal issue, not a spiritual one. Right? Behind their question, it's like, hey, marriage is this disposable contract. We have it right here in the law of Moses. And I want to know if you agree with our interpretation of the law of Moses here, Jesus, for seeking a divorce. They want to know, hey, what are the loopholes? What are the ways around marriage that we can discover in the law? I think of it like this. Imagine someone who goes to a bank and asks for a loan, and they get the loan, and their very next question is, how can I get out of this loan? 
And they're saying like, hey, what's the loophole for me to get out of this marriage? If you're following, the Pharisees want Jesus to confirm their loopholes for divorce. But instead of answering directly, Jesus does what he always does. He turns a question into another question. You ever have a teacher like that? Can't stand that, can you? Right? Well, what do you think? No, I want to know what you think. Just tell me the answer. That's not Jesus. He says in verse 3, what did Moses command you? He replied. They said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Listen, here's the loophole, Jesus. Moses himself, creator, writer of the law, not creator, but the writer of the law, said you can just give your spouse a certificate of divorce and you're good to go. And now read verse five out loud on your notes with me. It's Jesus' response to that. He says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. He doesn't fall into the trap. Instead, he replies, if you're following, God made allowance for divorce because of our fallen state. In other words, divorce was never God's intention. God never commanded this, but he made allowance for it because of sin. And he also made allowance for it. Here's an important thing to understand, to protect the weaker party, which in this case was women. I'll talk about those two things. First of all, sometimes, though necessary, we have to understand divorce was the result of human sin. God, though God allowed divorce, he doesn't sanction it. He doesn't want us, quote, seeking grounds and loopholes in order to get a divorce. Jesus says, basically, look at, you're asking the wrong question. It's not how can we get a divorce. It's what is God's intention for marriage. We'll come to that in a second. Second, we just got to understand, please understand this. Every time divorce is mentioned in the Bible, whenever it talks about the procedures for that, it's always with this backdrop of how can we protect the women? God saying, how can I protect women in this situation? Careful reading shows that this is always about the welfare of women and children. So listen, when the Pharisees ask Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? They're posing this question precisely as men living in a patriarchal society. In most cultures, you wouldn't even have to worry about it. You just throw the woman out of the house. We're good. God says, absolutely not. I'm going to put in some procedures that actually protects the more vulnerable party. He always protects the unprotected. Now back to our text. Essentially, the Pharisees are asking, is it fine to get a divorce for whatever reason we want since the law says that we can? Right? We see the loop hill here. Just want to make sure we're good on this. And I would just say, this question sounds awfully familiar to us today. It's the same question our culture lives by. I think our motto today, especially in the area of marriage, is I have the right to be happy and fulfilled. And so divorce has simply become a means to achieve this happiness, this fulfillment. For most, like the Pharisees, divorce has simply become a legal issue, not a spiritual issue. And if you're not being fulfilled in your marriage, then it's time to move on because we all know this truth, right? The grass is always greener. Or not. Or not. Look at what one, two authors wrote in the book they called Divorce, How and When to Let Go. It's up on the screen. Your marriage can wear out. 
People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. Hard hearts indeed. By making self-fulfillment the guiding principle in your life, divorce can be a triumph. It's not the way of Jesus, right? Listen to what Christian counselor Larry Crabb rightly notes about this again on the screen. We have become so conditioned to measuring the rightness of what we do by the quality of emotion it generates that a new version of relativistic ethics has developed that might be called the morality of fulfillment. Fulfillment has taken on a greater urgency than the value of obedience. You say that's true today? To be sure God cares about your well-being, don't get me wrong. It is okay to try to have this desire to increase self-fulfillment in your life. But the way of Jesus says the path to that, the path to shalom, the path to well-being, this path to fulfillment is actually obedience to what he says. If you're on your notes, Jesus says the path to fulfillment is obedience. He also says there's a way that is right to man, but that path will often lead to death. And this is the lesson Jesus has been teaching us the last two weeks, if you've been with us, right? The true path to life is when we die to ourselves. There we will find fulfillment and glory. And so what is God's path for marriage and divorce? This is where Jesus is just brilliant, in my opinion. Notice, he never really answers their question about the law and divorce. Instead, he's going to go back to God's original design found in Genesis. Look at verses 6 through 9 on your notes with me there. It says, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now would you read verses 7 through 9 out loud on your notes with me? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Brilliant. I'm going to go before the law was ever given to God's original design in the created order. More authority than even the law. If you're following, Jesus points back to God's original design for marriage. Hey guys, I'm not gonna argue with you about little loopholes. I'm gonna point you back to what God intended in the first place. Instead of asking, hey, what grounds do we have for divorce? Wrong question. The right question is, what's God's will for marriage? And what we see here, if you're on your notes again, is that marriage is a gift from God to be enjoyed for a lifetime. God's design, one woman, one man for a lifetime. Now, as a side note, I talked about this in our last series, right? This is also where God's design for sexuality is confirmed. Whenever we talk about some of the issues going on in the world today, I don't look at specific verses necessarily. I go back to this, God's original design. He created us male and female. And they are to come together as one. People say today, well, that's impossible. That's impossible. 
That's pre-fall, right? God made allowance for these kinds of things. Culture changes. Time changes. And my argument to followers of Jesus, right? We don't, we keep this here. If you're a follower of Jesus, we don't like think like the world's going to live like this. For followers of Jesus, we are now (laughs) post-resurrection. Which means that what was broken pre-fall can now be restored right here, right now, through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in each of us. Chuck mentioned this in his prayer. I didn't know he was going to do that, but this is how God works sometimes. This is the promise Ezekiel made, right? He said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. Same language Jesus used, your hard hearts. And I'm going to give you a new heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In other words, yes, we live in a broken world, but as followers of Jesus, you've been given a new heart. And within that heart, we're told this incredible promise. The power of the Holy Spirit resides in you so that you can follow through on what God has for you in life. Incredible. Back to the text. Jesus says God's design in marriage, if you're following, is a covenant. Excuse me. The word the Bible uses for this is a covenant. And if you're following, a covenant means being glued together as one. Think about the mystery of this. One man, one woman, becoming one new entity, leaving their past behind, specifically their family of origin, right? And joining together to create a new family where they commit to one another to meet each other's needs for a lifetime. It is a mystery. But if that's not mysterious enough, check this out. Paul actually says, this right here, is an illustration of God and the church. God covenanting with us as his people, the new covenant in his blood. Your marriage, if you're married, is a reflection of the covenant God made with us. If you're following, marriage is a reflection of God's covenant with the church. That's a big deal. So marriage, it's not just a contract. It's not just a legal issue. It can't just be dissolved on a whim. It's a sacred covenant made before God, meant to last a lifetime as a representation to the world around us. I mean, this is one of the true ways I believe the church today can stand out in the world, committed to one another like Christ committed to the church. And that's why Jesus adds the line at the end of this text, therefore what God has joined together Let no one separate. Jeff sometimes uses this illustration in a marriage ceremony. Maybe some of you have seen this, right? His wife makes a paper male and a paper female, and then he glues them together, literally. And then he talks about how if you rip that apart, there's going to be collateral damage involved in that. And isn't that true about divorce? Don't like to talk about it as much today. But there's always collateral damage when two people who are meant to be one are broken together. Now, I'm fully aware this is sounding super high truth right now to you. Not a whole lot of grace. The disciples thought that too. So we pick up the story in verse 10 where they say, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. Matthew's version of this very story says the question they're concerned with here. It says in Matthew 19.10, 
When they were, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. (laughs) Well, they understand. I mean, divorce was just happening like that back in this day. They understand, whoa, this is a high commitment. This is a high calling. Paul actually agrees and says, listen, for some of us, it's better to remain single. Maybe just stay married to Christ. Maybe that's a weird concept to you. But that's sort of the idea, right? You can serve Christ with your life. You can be married to him. Jesus says in verse 11, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now listen, while there's some hard truth here, there's also a lot of grace. As Jesus acknowledges that while divorce is not ultimately God's desire, there are times when it is warranted. These verses cover one of those reasons doesn't cover all of them. And before I get to some application for those of us who are married and for those of us who have experienced the hard parts of divorce, I will spend a few minutes here talking about some of the biblically warranted reasons we have for divorce. But I will say this again. God never commanded divorce. God doesn't desire divorce. Sometimes instead of a divorce, separation is a good idea for couples for a season or a time. Listen, his desire in every situation is ultimately reconciliation. But let's just be honest, there are some times when that's not possible. So let's talk about those times. If you're following, number one, divorce is warranted in cases of adultery or sexual immorality. Again, in Matthew's version of the same story, here's what Jesus said in verse 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Again, why is this so serious to him? I'm going to get real specific here, so close your ears if you don't want to hear this. But when does the covenant actually happen in a marriage? It's after the ceremony when the man and the woman become one flesh. That is literally talking about the sexual union that takes place between a husband and wife. By the way, another side note here, people love to argue as well today that the Bible doesn't talk about premarital sex as being a sin. It does. Right here, right? The act of a covenant is the act of a sexual union between a man and a wife. And so the reason it's so serious, adultery or sexual immorality, is you're literally just breaking that apart. You're saying, I'm breaking away from the covenant that I made with you. Again, this doesn't mean that if this happens in your marriage that you have to get a divorce. I have seen incredible stories of restoration on this. When the person comes and repents and the other person, the other spouse is willing to work together to restore what had been broken. But if that's just not an option, if there's no sign of repentance at all, then this is one reason to be warranted for a divorce. Second biblical warrant for a divorce is in cases of abandonment. In cases of abandonment. Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, which is one of the most important passages in the Bible about marriage. We don't have time to look at all of it today, but here's what he says in verse 15. If you're married to an unbeliever, and if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. I don't have much more to say about that, right? If you are left, if you are abandoned, I can't imagine how painful that would be. But Paul says, you're no longer bound to that situation. The third biblical warrant for divorce is in cases of ongoing, unrepentant 
abuse. Now, I will just say, sadly, there is some controversy about this in the church with a capital C. Because neither Paul nor Jesus specifically mention the word abuse when they talk about marriage. And because of that, there are some churches that tell women to go back to the abusive situations they find themselves in if they really want to obey Jesus. And yes, I'm mainly talking about women here. Gratefully, I stand up here this morning on behalf of the elders and the pastors of this church and say, we do not believe that. In fact, I believe people who say to an abused person to do that, they're doing the exact same thing that the Pharisees are doing in this text. What they're saying is, taking a particular text, like the Pharisees did in Deuteronomy 24.1, instead of looking at the overall principles of the Bible, which Jesus does in Genesis 1 and 2. So listen, just because Paul or Jesus don't specifically mention the word abuse when they talk about divorce, it doesn't mean the principle isn't there in scriptures. Did you know Jesus never used the word Trinity? It's still there. It's still a biblical principle. And what I would say to this is the entire bigger principle at work here in the canon of God is that God is a God who is concerned with the powerless and the weak. He is a God of the vulnerable. There are examples of this principle everywhere in Scripture, everywhere, hundreds of them. I'll just give you one. Look at Psalm 10, verses 17 through 18. It says, you, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry. Defending the fatherless and who? Oppressed. So that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. That's just one example of hundreds. God has a heart for the oppressed and the vulnerable. Even last week, if you were here, Luke did a great job, didn't he? And we, he, he, Taught us this verse in Mark 9, 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Who are the little ones? The weak, the vulnerable, the poor, the oppressed. I'll just say this again. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, the gospels, the epistles all testify to the centrality of God's protection for the vulnerable. Even in the infamous quote, or maybe famous quote, right? We all know this one. God hates divorce. Micah, or excuse me, Malachi 2.16. I'd encourage you to actually go look at the context of that verse. Here's how it starts. The people of Israel, the men of Israel specifically are asking God, where are you? Why aren't you blessing us? And God responds to them in chapter two, verse 14, this way. You're asking me for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against you, whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your marriage companion and your wife by covenant. In other words, you want to know why I'm not blessing you? Because of the way you're treating your wife. Treacherously, he said. And then, here's that famous verse. This is the most literal English translation we have. It says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of armies. So be careful about your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. This passage is dealing directly with preventing violence and harm against women. What's my point? Let's bring this home. Even though there's not a word-for-word instruction about the 
you know, the legality of divorce on an abused person, the principles for that are found everywhere in Scripture with those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Sadly, the urgency and why I'm spending time on this, of talking about this, has never been higher. While I know that there are situations where husbands are being abused, maybe emotionally and and mentally, listen, did you know that one out of every three women in the United States right now has been slapped, pushed, shoved by an intimate partner at some point? Sexual assault occurs in 40% to 45% of battering relationships in marriage. And I just want to say to you, if you're here and you find yourself in this situation this morning, the one thing I would want you to know, it's never your fault. Every person is responsible for their own actions. You are not responsible for someone else's actions. And no person deserves abuse ever, ever no matter what you've done or haven't done, your partner may try to convince you you're the one to blame here. But the word of God insists otherwise again and again. Jesus said it this way in Mark 7, we learn this, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, All of these evil things come from within and defile a person. Our sin doesn't come from what people do to us. If your partner is abusive, it's because of their own sin. And no one should live in fear of their spouse. If you are, if you're unsure what to do, consider talking to your pastor or your counselor. Often they might be able to help you see things more clearly. Do you have a trusted friend that you could confide in? Listen, if you feel afraid to even do that, that's a sign of abuse. If you're not ready to talk to somebody you know, I I have got a number up here on the screen, the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Call. God cares about your safety. He sees your suffering and he wants it to end. Abuse has no place in marriage. Can I say that again? Maybe get an amen here. Abuse has no place in marriage, period. Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives do the same. Can you imagine Jesus abusing the church? As we close now, I'm just gonna offer a few words of application to those who are married, to those who are divorced. And if you're single, Listen in. We need your encouragement and your help. In fact, Paul celebrates the singles as a vital part of our church family, and so do we here. We need you. Now, first, to the married, I'll just say, can I encourage you, as I talked about earlier, to choose obedience over feelings. I have the word choose there on purpose, because loving your spouse is a choice you make, not an emotion you feel. Can I say that again? Love is a choice you make. It's not an emotion you feel. If I had a dime for every person who sat in my office and said, I just don't love my spouse anymore, I'd have like $3, (laughs) which is a lot. As we talked about earlier, love today is defined as being fulfilled to being happy. And if you're not feeling that, well, 
then it's time to move on. That's the general concept of today. Now listen, that might be the way of the world, but again, it's not the way of Jesus. Love is an action. It's an action. John reminds us, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends or your spouse. That is what Jesus did for us and what he calls us to do in the covenant relationship of marriage. So whenever somebody tells me that, right, I just don't love him or her anymore, you know what I say to them? What are you going to do about it? What? It's their fault. They're the problem in this situation. (laughs) No. What are you going to do to love them in this situation? Remember, the call of Christ is to die to yourself daily. Pick up the cross and follow him. Pick up the towel of service we talked about, right? And learn to serve your spouse. Both partners are to do that. And as you do that, then the feelings come. As I die to myself, as my wife dies to herself, and we seek to serve one another, that's when we really find things start to click. Listen, Jesus never says, abandon your relationship if you're not getting your needs met. No. He says, dig in and learn to love through action. Can I just give you a little secret here? Every marriage will have difficult times. That'd be another space for an amen, right? (laughs) Our marriage, my marriage with Peggy has had difficult times, but here is one promise I will say to you that we have made. Never, ever, ever will the D word come up, ever. Shouldn't be a weapon, shouldn't be a threat, It shouldn't be a part of our vocabulary because just like the covenant that God made with us, we have made a covenant, which means I am committed to working through whatever problems that we are facing together because I believe obedience really is the path to fulfillment. Got to move on. Second, don't wait until it's too late. I could just say to you, if you're struggling right now, don't wait until it's too late. So many times I have people come into the office, one One of the spouses is already checked out. But they're like, well, we'll throw a Hail Mary. Maybe the pastor can fix it. No. You have got to nurture your marriage while things are going well. Don't just assume it's always going to be easy. As the old saying goes, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I really don't know what that means, but I think it makes sense, right? (laughs) So start to think of your marriage like a flower bed. Sorry, guys, but this is the illustration. Think of your marriage like a flower bed. You've got to be cultivating it, weeding it, fertilizing it all of the time. Marriage is the same. Maybe right now you could commit to doing a marriage study. Guess what? Every person in our church has the opportunity to go to Right Now Media, and there are some phenomenal marriage studies on there. Do that. Maybe you need to go to a counselor. Well, we're not in an emergency. You don't have to be in an emergency situation to help your marriage. Guys, maybe you need an accountability partner with another guy. Gals, maybe you need another accountability partner with another girl or gal. Maybe you just need to start praying together, doing something to cultivate that relationship. Third, to married couples, avoid self-righteous judgmentalism. Be grateful if your marriage is thriving, but be careful of judging those whose marriages might be struggling or have ended. Because you know why? There ain't no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. May nobody ever, ever have that experience here in our church. You don't know enough about their situation to judge them. You don't know the details. You don't know what they've endured. And you certainly don't know what God thinks about their circumstances. So here we go. 
Let God be the judge, and you can concentrate on loving them without reservation. That'd be another place for an amen. (laughs) Finally, for those of you who have experienced the pain of divorce, and I'm going to invite the choir to make their way out here, I have just one thing to say to you. Jesus was, is, and always will be in the business of restoration. So if you're following, no matter what you've done or no matter what somebody has done to you, come to Jesus and receive the grace and restoration he freely offers. Friends, there is no sin that Christ did not pay for on the cross. There is no emotional damage that the Spirit of God cannot heal. The question is not whether God forgives those who fail in marriage or fail before marriage. There is no instance in scripture, can you believe this, of a person coming to God and he refuses them forgiveness. The question is, will you come to him today, now in repentance if that's what you need to, or in your pain if that's what you need to, believing even now, even here, he can make all things new. One of my favorite verses in scripture doesn't deal specifically with marriage, but it applies. It's from Joel Chapter 2, verse 25, where God says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. This is a reference to when locusts came and just destroyed all of the crops of the people of Israel, but I feel like it applies to this area. Divorce can sometimes feel like a devastation and destruction, and it is. And if that's what you've gone through today, I just want to say again, the Lord can restore years of devastation. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.